the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The danger of a double standard. And then what is quiet quitting? Five reasons not to give up on church and later helping your kids avoid negative Christianity. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome to the Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Happy to have you with us on a Tuesday afternoon, Aubrey. Life's back to normal a little bit. Kids back in school. Some of your kids. How are you today? Yeah, doing good. You know, I got to spend the morning, believe it or not, at Raging Waves Water Park. We took our our uh, middle son is turning 13, and he wanted to go there for his birthday. So I. You know, I was out in this in the sunshine all day riding rides and then I had to come to work. Kind of a depressing situation, but yeah, uh, yep, yep, but yeah, yep. yeah. So not a totally kind of a I felt bad for my 16 year old who walked to work this morning or walked to school this morning and we were like, well, bye. <laughs> we're going to go have fun <laughs> without you. <laughs> How does uh, one only spend? I love raging waves. How does yeah. one only spend part of a day there? Well, you know, now their hours are a little bit different because uh, I guess school going back, they don't have as many high schoolers working there. So, oh. you know, I could be trust me, I could be there all day long, but they wouldn't let us. They kicked us out. Okay, I do like raging waves. A little cooler today, but you know, yeah, a little bit cooler today. I I was wishing it was in the like you know nineties, so you really wanted to get in the water. But I'll take it. It, it feels my, like you're on vacation a little bit when you're raging waves. A little bit. My youngest daughter loves 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 raging waves, and I do too. I've told you before my hatred of theme parks. Like I don't like Great America. Oh yeah, right. But I love water parks. Oh, so, interesting. So just like all water parks, all the time. I could be at a water park all day long, but it, uh, do you like riding America, rides or do you like yeah. just being in the sun or like the whole thing? No, no. I love the the rides. I love the, uh, I love the wave pool, all of okay. it. That's okay. all, I'm, I'm, I'm for all water park stuff. No. And basically none. I'm, a, I'm for none of it when it comes to great America. Interesting. Or other things, so. Okay. Okay. That is it. I well, should have invited you. you. Sorry. I mean, it would have been kind of awkward, me and your family just trudging along uh, Raging Waves. Like, maybe if my daughter had come with, that would be more, that would have been more oh, normal. Man. But that, that could have been awkward, probably. Like me, and your, me, and, me and your husband, Kevin, just chilling on the lazy river. Probably, probably would have been something. All right. So, as everybody knows, and Aubrey, there's... Uh, something in the news you and I have not really touched on yet, and that is all that has been going on at Mar-a-Lago, President Trump, classified documents, FBI. You either think that this is justice, let's get them yeah. with all this, or you think this is the end of our republic, and it doesn't feel like there's much room in the middle no, right now. No, it you doesn't. I, I feel like no one's just chilling out going, well, let's see. Let's see what happens. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We don't do that well in our culture. So as always... Uh, our man, David French, kind of cut through the middle mm. for me a little bit in this. And he said something that I've been kind of feeling. It's You could get it from the title. David French wrote this. Apply the Hillary Clinton rule to Donald Trump. 
There cannot be one legal standard for Republicans and another for Democrats. Hmm. He talks about how this feels like deja vu uh, because it feels a little bit. Now, obviously, it's not apples to apples. There are differences, but it feels like some similarities to what happened when Hillary Clinton, her emails and other stuff. Right. Uh, And David French's point is this Uh, on both sides of the aisle. If you were um, up in arms that they were looking into what Hillary Clinton had done with documents and they were taking kind of a close look, but you're celebrating what they're doing, the president Mm. Trump or vice versa, you were just cheering them on, go through everything mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton could have possibly done, but you're crying, this is the end of the republic, and this is just wow for Donald Trump, then that's what's wrong with our culture right wow. now of politics, right? Like, it's never, like, we could go a long way right now in general just going, let's have the same standard across the board. Yeah. But but that feels, doesn't that almost feel laughable to even suggest right now? I mean, I, I you know... This isn't this isn't a segment about David French, but I do appreciate that he just he does kind of get to the heart of the matter. And and this feels exactly right. Like I I have been a little I have not put it in these terms because I had forgotten, honestly, about the search of Hillary Clinton's emails. But now that I'm hearing him say this, like I have been a little I don't know, turned off. Maybe that's not the right word, but of people like freaking out. This is the end of our constitution. This is what, like, well, is it just because you're such a Trump defender that you can't even imagine something could go wrong? And I understand people are innocent until proven guilty, but it's like, anyway, all that to say, I think this is interesting to me that we would not, we would not be for an obstruction of justice when it comes to one, uh, member of a certain political party but then we are for another and is justice justice or does justice only apply to certain parties i guess that's the question ultimately and and that's what's wrong with our politics right now it is it has become so tribal it has become so like Mm. it's what you and i talk about it's no longer a difference of ideas it's good versus evil yeah so therefore if i'm we always think we're on the side of good of course like i'm never like hey this is good versus evil and i'm on the evil side right right Right. no no (laughs) so we always think we're on the side of good and if it really is a good versus evil my good side is what's going to save america bring us blah 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 right if it's good versus evil, then anything done against them is ridding evil, right? Yeah. It's, it's bringing light to right. darkness. It's right. whatever else. And anything that goes against my side is persecution. Mm. It's the devil. Mm. It's uh, they're they're dry. And that is so dangerous. Like that is so dangerous. The weird part to me too is, I mean, yes, super dangerous. And we're, you know, we're we're sort of seeing that now in some of the reactions to all of this. But I would say it also strikes me as deeply immature. Like that's what my mm-hmm. kids do. Do you know what I mean? Like my kids are like, "Well, mom, this happened to her. Why didn't it happen to me?" Or you said this to me, but you didn't say it to him. I mean, like that's literally what my children do. They don't have enough perspective to step back and look at reason and look at um, the things they do have and don't have. Like it, it strikes me as immature because there's no perspective to it to step back and like see the full picture. It is just, I'm up in arms because my person is be you know, and I, 
I think that's the state of our country right yeah. now. And yeah. I don't know how to fix it, Brian. I wish I did, except I think the Christians have to just pause and uh, yes, stand up for injustice, but like, don't be the fool that everybody else is being right now. And don't cause a, you know, don't run your mouth until you have the whole story. Wait. I mean, they're just like, I, I feel like there are just some signs of maturity that we all yeah. need at the moment. And I got thinking what, what changes it as well. You just asked that question. And I really think that the answer is somewhat simple in the fact of just deal with yourself, mm. deal with how mm. you're going to deal. And maybe if enough people do that, but like, you know, I, cards on the table. I hope that a lot of what they ended up looking for with president Trump and all this stuff, it turns out to be much ado about nothing. Sure, like I, I, right. But, but we have no idea. Yeah. And all I think we're saying is if you were one of the people on Facebook on, uh, you know, with your family and friends or whatever, uh, lock her up, all of this stuff when it came to Hillary Clinton, mm. then, then take the stand, mm. take the same standard to mm. people on quote unquote your team yeah, and vice versa. Yeah. Either show grace to both, take a hard line with both, whatever it is with both. It's our inability to really have a standard that cuts across that really mm. is hurting us right now wow. uh, in law enforcement, in politics, whatever else it might be. Mm. And and as we've always said here, our concern is that these things trickle into the church. And um, yeah, I, I like your, I like your thing. Just the answer <laughs> always is, what would you say to your second grader? What would you say <laughs> to your eight year old? I mean, Let's start living that way. Let's start living that way. It, it's just, I, and I'm not saying I'm perfect. It just feels like the Wild West out there. I don't even know. This is why we can't have nice things. There you go. Every now and then we do things on the show where I feel young. And every now and then we do things on the show where I feel old. We're about to go for an old moment. You ready? Ready. Like, ready. I'm, 40, I'm 45. You're younger than that. <laughs> Thank People you. Can just, fill say that that. In. just say that. Just say that. I. Yes, you are uh, you are younger in months, not years. <laughs> but, <laughs> I told you to stop talking after you said younger than that, Brian. <laughs> you are younger than that. Uh, and so we fall in this interesting place where it's like sometimes I just feel like I don't get the generation behind us. And they're, you know, that generation of working like people just out of college and they're young, uh, mid 20s, old 20s, like they're closer to my kids than they are to me. Yeah. And I go, wow, I they do see the world differently. They than me. totally do. Yep. I felt that while sitting down yesterday and watching the today show, I get up early because I'm old, like we just said. And then yeah. I, I like to turn on the today show, get, get, hear the news, my girls, right. Savannah and Hoda, and, uh, <laughs> your girls. <laughs> and so I'm watching today's show and they do a report about something called quiet quitting. And this is a viral trend right now in on TikTok. You might be thinking to yourself, what is quiet quitting? Because I thought the same thing to myself. Yeah. I want to play the first minute or two of this report because it defines it. And then I want to wrestle with it. I, I want to decide, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Let's listen to this report. Quiet quitting means that when somebody asks you to do something that's not in your contract, you don't do it. The concept of quiet quitting. Not doing the job of two to three people, you know, stuff like that. Is making some very loud noise on TikTok. Yeah, that's a recipe for disaster. 
I'm going to tell you that. First, let's define the idea, which one career coach says is really about priorities. People aren't going above and beyond. They're not bending over backwards for their employers anymore and sacrificing their mental and physical health. They're doing what they're getting paid for. Allison Peck has amassed hundreds of thousands of followers on TikTok, doling out professional career advice. She tells us quiet quitting doesn't apply to many people, whether they're trying to run a company or jumpstart a career. But for others, she says it makes a lot of sense, even if the name doesn't. I wish it was called something different because you're not quitting. You're taking care of yourself. So what would you call this? You're coasting. You're like carefully coasting. Some speak about reclaiming control between work and personal life. Like, isn't that just called working, like doing your job properly with a healthy boundary? While others say it's partly about pay. Quietly quitting for me is acting my wage and knowing that my time on my time is valuable. The viral trend coming at a time when a Gallup poll finds employee engagement has dipped for the first time in a decade. And the great resignation of workers post-pandemic has put a strain on many businesses. But some online warning that quiet quitting doesn't benefit most people in the long run. Quiet quitting is literally wasting your time at this company and shooting yourself in the foot. So please don't do that. If you feel like you have no other choice, get a new job. As for advice to employers about combating quiet quitting. Managers are really important, and that does start at the top. It's important to have the right kind of conversations at the right time so that people do know what's expected of them in their role and how their work connects to something bigger. Okay, Aubrey, this is where I struggle because I am all for boundaries. Yeah. Like healthy work boundaries. We're, we, you know, we call them work-life balance. Like the people yeah. who were coming out of college, like I had friends in the finance world who were working hundred-hour days, six days, uh, hundred-hour weeks. Uh, <laughs> you know, this kind of thing. You know, they're working seven. Like there's, there is something. But yes. Here's what makes me uncomfortable about what was said in this. Like the person who's kind of behind this saying, "I wish it wasn't called quiet quitting." I think, and he says, "What would you call it?" And she goes casual coasting <laughs> and i thought to myself oh, oh or this idea yep you and i uh, we've started things right like we both started churches we kind of you know this radio show is kind of it's not like we took it over from other things right and so you kind of just do what needs to be done to get the job done like right. you just do it and so when the whole concept here is you don't do anything that's not in your contract right you do nothing you casually coast all of this stuff for your own mental health Mm-mm. i gotta be honest it left me really uncomfortable oh. what, did, what did you take away from this i mean it okay i'm with you yes healthy boundaries yes healthy work-life balance done i mean that's not a question that's not up for debate done and done and done Nobody wants to see an alcoholic. Nobody wants to see burnout. This to me feels like total and utter, honestly, laziness and lack of work ethic. And I'm going to show my age here too. But like, if you, you know, we have a staff at our church. If you work for us and you say you're casually coasting at work, if you and I were to do this radio show and say, we're casually coasting the radio show, we were to show up and lead our churches and say, we're casually coasting. You know what happened? We would get fired for not being good employees and not doing a good job. Like, I'm Casually sorry. Casually coast them out the door. It's so <laughs> Now, maybe, maybe when Gen Z are the employee employers, they'll like casual coasting. That'll be a virtue and that, that'll be a value. But right now, 
Gen Z aren't the one employing people. And so this sort of casual coasting just feels like not doing your job. And it? it feels like lack of stewardship, lack of leadership, lack of work ethic, like just work hard, go above and beyond, impress the people you're working with, steward your job well. It doesn't mean get burnout. It doesn't mean work right. over the amount of hours that you need to, like, but do more than is expected of you. And that impresses people. And plus, that's just like good industrious work ethic i don't know this is wild to me this feels lazy right. and immature to me You're wow, I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying immature i'm just calling immature on everything today so a couple things also stand out to me for this like this is a very white collar deal right like yeah <laughs> there's not there's not many guys on a road crew wow or, you know going oh you know i'm gonna casually very, ghost very privileged yeah two uh here's what also stood out to me I was having a conversation with my brother-in-law the other day and we're talking about his office and all of this stuff. And the conversation kind of went like this, like ever since COVID, all of the, I'm going to use the word power. He didn't use this word. I, it, it's not the right word, but I'm going to use it anyway. All of the power kind of resides with the employees. Like I don't feel comfortable coming into the office. I don't, mm. this. there's coming a day when that shifts back. Yeah. Right. Where it's like the employer is going to be like, listen, you're coming in. Or this is how we're going to do like that's coming. Yeah. Uh, and I do wonder now if we've had years, a couple years in COVID where people have had to bend over backwards for I don't feel comfortable coming in. I don't feel comfortable doing this. I'm going to do it on Zoom. I'm going right. to do it. Whatever. Right. Where we've lost a little bit of work ethic and we've lost a little bit of, hey, I'm going to I'm going to take some ownership in my job and get it done like that. There is a lack of ownership in this right now. But it, there's also a generational thing, Aubrey. Do we I, we've now seen a ton of articles just around the fact that the next generation just sees work different, totally different. And, yeah. And I don't I'm not saying better, but just differently where they're like. I don't really care. Like, I'm just going to kind of do my job, but I'm really more concerned about what happens outside of my job. There's a little bit of healthiness to that, but also, I don't know, feels problematic. Like a friend of mine has a few Gen Z employees. She runs a pretty big organization. And she said that her Gen Zers are the only ones who will like, it'll be a meeting and then they'll have an afternoon meeting, like some morning meeting, afternoon meeting. And the Gen Zers will like, be like, I don't know if I can make it to the afternoon meeting. I need to go home and take a nap. I'm so tired after this one. And she's like, look, if you need to go take a nap, go take a nap. But you don't need to announce it. Like you've lost some professionalism yeah. and you lose some respect, like respect that other people have for you, I think, uh, gets lost a little bit. But it's so funny. Like, I think that sort of captures the heart of like, I'm going to go take a nap in the middle of the day and maybe not show up to my to my late afternoon meeting. I mean, that's a recipe for getting fired in my mind, hundred yeah, percent. you know, and definitely so, not promoted and definitely not getting fun bonuses and things like that. <laughs> so I knew of somebody, again, these are anecdotes, but I heard through somebody else. So this isn't somebody I yeah. know, uh, but they got fired and the reason, and they thought it was the most unfair thing in the world, but you want to know what their big grievance was? Oh, let's hear it. That their boss was telling them that they were expected to be working, whether from home or in the office that there was an expectation that they would be working yeah. from nine to five, that there was an expectation yeah. that you're working. And this person thought that it was the most unfair thing in the world. No. And I thought to myself, like, wh what's going on? Yeah, like you what and I work jobs. Happening? 
especially our pastor jobs, your writing job, whatever, there's there's not set time. Yeah. But there's rarely times we have to talk about what's the minimum number of hours you have to work. It's oftentimes going, what's too much? Right. Where, you know, because you and I, again, we want there to be work-life balance. It just feels like what used to be, hey, don't work too many hours. Make sure you have a life has now turned into, hey, make sure you work enough hours, not just have fun. Like that, there's a weird something's changed. Something's changed recently. Yeah, so something has changed. And I, I'm sure there are sociologists studying like why and how. And I think that would be really interesting. I think it'll be interesting to see how this impacts the workforce in the future. But I, I think because I know Gen Z values like friendship and authenticity and they want the people that we're working, they're working with to feel like family. And I understand that. I think that's beautiful, but it's like at for that value, then the, the value of like hard work or, or yep. whatever it is, it has kind of died. And I, somehow you have to figure out how to have both, but that's funny. Casual coasting or quiet quitting. There you go. We all want the office is what we want. We all want the office. It's so true. We want the family and we want to see our coworkers get married and have children. That's right. That's (laughs) right. Well, speaking of the feeling old and the next generation, uh, Aubrey, somebody we haven't had on in a while, but we did have her on a couple different times. Her name is Tish Harrison Warren. Tish has written many books. One thing I, and we're going to look at it here that I appreciate about Tish is that she writes opinion pieces from a very Christian perspective at the New York Times. Yeah, it's so impressive that they even publish her, frankly. That they publish her and that she's so bold Mm -hmm. to go on that sort of place and just, you know, you know you're being read by people who don't agree with you. And, you know, to use biblical imagery, that's light in darkness right there. Like that is being a city on a hill. So this past week, Tish wrote this, the God I know is not a culture warrior. Mm. We know this phrase culture warrior very much right now, but uh, what are some of the things, what, what is she talking about in this? Yeah, she's talking about something you and I have actually talked about on the show this week, and it's how God tends to show up in our news and social media when we're fighting about something. And uh, she talks about how typically the subject of faith seems most often discussed in conversations about voting patterns and campaigning This is a quote from her article. God appears in our public discourse when Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, a Georgia Republican, calls for Christian nationalism or in Twitter Mm -hmm. debates about whether a coach should publicly play in the 50-yard line or when the former gubernatorial candidate Candace Taylor painted Jesus guns babies on the side of her campaign bus. In that order. Yeah, in that order. And here's what she says. It's not that I think God has no place in politics or public discussion. Faith, of course, touches all areas of life. But then she goes on to say, but when we primarily talk about God in the context of political or ideological debate, believers' actual experience of God, worship, and faith, not to mention spiritual virtues like humility, gratitude, kindness, often gets lost. And then she talks about essentially God becomes a pawn or a means to a political end in our culture wars. And um, Mm -hmm. she's right. I mean, I feel like this is what we saw with, um, uh, I can't remember who we've talked about. We've talked about a a couple stories, like three or three stories or so of uh, Whoopi Goldberg was one. Reverend Al Sharpton Mm -hmm. was one. There was the Texas Lieutenant governor yesterday, like using God to justify their own political ends or their own political points of view and it's um it just feels 
I'm trying to, it feels like just exactly what she said, that God is being used as a pawn. And unfortunately, I think we just have to be really careful when we're saying like God is on our side. And anytime we're using God rather than worshiping God, that is big time problematic. Yeah. Yeah. And she, like you said, Tish says, churches and religious groups must continually highlight how our traditions address pressing issues that will never trend on Twitter or dominate political debates. Like our, our, this is not a call to remove your faith from everything political, everything societal. Like that's not at all what she's saying. But what I appreciate about what she's saying, Aubrey, is this. Our faith runs so much deeper than that. Mm. What Jesus does in our lives is so much deeper than define which side of a culture debate, which side of a political debate we should end on. Like Jesus is not primarily a culture warrior who's coming in. And we hear that Mm. all the time. It doesn't mean he doesn't care about things like this and that we shouldn't stand up. What Tish Harrison Warren here is saying, though, is like, don't lose the beauty of 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 the grandeur of what Jesus has done Mm. for you, who he is like, don't just minimize him to I got to pull out the Jesus card as we discuss abortion. I got to pull out the Jesus card as we talk immigration, uh, who I'm going to vote for this year. All of those matter. But let's elevate it even higher and help people understand what a relationship with Jesus means uh, beyond the politics of America. Like, like we've we've minimized, don't you think? Like, that's what the, I, this is how I take this. We've kind of minimized who Jesus is and what he has done in our lives. And we've lost the awe. We talk about that often of just how spectacular that is. Yeah. And, I, I you know, I think what's interesting is I had a conversation with a younger, I think Gen Z maybe millennial, but young millennial, if a millennial, probably Gen Z. Anyway, she said something to me like, I grew up thinking Jesus was a Republican. And now I know for certain Jesus would have been a Democrat. And I said, you know what, can I actually, can I actually, you know, push back on that a little bit? I think Jesus was about his own kingdom and we cannot categorize or, um, uh, contain Jesus mm. in any political party because Jesus would not have been Republican or Democrat. Like Jesus was about the kingdom of God and not this American political system. And I mm. think that's what we're saying. Like we're making Jesus too small. We're making God too small. We're forgetting the point is like, not does he back up my beliefs, but right. it, it, does he have the power to save and transform and do I bow down before him? And it's just like, we're almost just having the conversation in the wrong sphere. And I think that's going back to what you're saying about losing the awe. Like, yeah, we're again, God does care about politics. Jesus was very political, but I think to try to like reduce God down to one political party is really problematic because it doesn't understand how big God is and really what the work of Jesus is all about. Amen. She says this, sometimes in order to retain a quote, remembrance of God, I have to take a break from our societal discourse around faith, which can minimize who I imagine God to be. Mm. Practices like gathered worship, silence, reading scriptures and prayer remind me that if God is real, there are four, far more interesting, lasting and confounding things about God than what can be captured 
in our public discourse. Mm. Like, I love that, Aubrey. Yeah. You, you and I talk about this all the time. We need big, big views of God. Yeah. And uh, and sometimes when we, when we bring him down just into the culture debates, while important, uh, we kind of lose that. Uh, it's getting cooler out there, Brian. We don't have to mm-hmm. keep talking about the weather, but I feel like it's a little bit noteworthy because it's starting. It almost starts to feel like fall. I got to be honest. I'm a little bit tempted to bring out like my pumpkin decorations. Is it too early for that? I mean, it could not be any. I mean, that is a ridiculous thing. <laughs> like you are, you're one step from like, hey, October first. Let me put out my Christmas decorations. No, it's way. Like if if I went into Starbucks right now and they were like, hey, oh. pumpkin spice latte, oh. I might leave. Oh, I might Brian. go. Now we have shared before that I think decorating for Halloween is a bit ridiculous, yes. and I also think all thing pumpkins are gross. Right, uh, but. With that said, yes, you please, Aubrey, at <laughs> least make it to Labor Day. Please. Okay, okay, I'll make it to Labor Day just for you, Brian. And I re- mostly I just wanted to hear that reaction because I knew that's what you would say. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, is one of my grinds, my gears, like, right? You is. and I go at this because you and Kevin keep up your Christmas tree, yeah. I think, for seven months of the year. Yeah, we do. It's like and half so, the year. <laughs> for me, there's an order. Gotta get you. you gotta get to like October one before you can even talk about Halloween. But you certainly have to get past Thanksgiving <laughs> to even remotely talk about Christmas. Yeah, so that's and, we just skip over Thanksgiving at our house for sure. And by I, th- this one's a little fudgeable, but by at least early January, get the Christmas stuff out of here. It's time. <laughs> And like you had Christmas stuff up while you guys were still in shorts and t-shirts, I think. Like, hey, yeah, yeah July fourth, our Christmas decorations. We just we July just changed. We Christmas just decorated day. our tree with like blue, red, and white Christmas. Yes, yes. <laughs> Valentine's it had like hearts on it and stuff like that. We finally took it down at Easter time because we felt like that was a little bit sacrilegious. Just kidding. We take our tree down early January. Okay, I don't know why we started talking about this, Brian. I'm not exactly sure how to segue, but. Speaking of church-related items, uh, nope. yesterday we Just were go right through yeah, it. Yesterday we were having a conversation about how um, there's sort of this cottage industry of people either leaving the church or. Uh, declaring that they're no longer going to church online. Like it seems to be a little bit of a trend out there to do it. And it's especially among younger generations, people who are saying goodbye to the local church and relevant magazine is, is talking about this saying that, um, you know, part of that of course is legitimate because Mm -hmm. they have seen that the church has lost her mission, lost her way, et cetera. Um, And yet you and I, you know, as people who love the local church, feel really passionate about, like, let's not totally give up on the church. There are things, there yes. are ways we need to course correct. And there, of course, like sin and and other, like, abuse even that needs to be brought out of the darkness. But let's not give up on the church forever. Now, interestingly, right. do you remember, Brian, when I was first on the show? I mean, so this is like almost two years ago now. Donald Miller, super influential Christian writer he started blogging and and posting about how he was leaving the church and Mm. he was saying um that he did not a church i remember he he didn't attend church very often because he connected with god in other ways like nature or through his work and then we started seeing some other more popular christian writers doing the same thing and then um relevant magazine actually is drawing from that from donald miller's post and 
I didn't know this, but apparently later Donald Miller followed up saying, I'd say half of the most impactful people I know who love Jesus and tear up at the mention of his name, who reach out to the poor and lonely are fundamentally sound in their theology, who create institutions that feed hundreds of thousands, do not attend a traditional church service. Many of them even speak at churches, but they have no home church and don't Mm. long for one. That's a problem. That's a problem. So that's what I want to talk about. No, this article is, we'll talk about this in a minute. Uh, minute. They do go into uh, five reasons for the church. I do want to talk about yep. that. But why is that so problematic, Brian? Yeah, it, it just, I don't read scripture and see, <clears throat> uh, and see, um, I don't read scripture and see the optional nature mm. <clears throat> of being part of the local church. Yeah. Have we messed this up? Sure. Is everything that we do in quote unquote, the church now biblical? I don't know. Like, I'm not saying that it has to always be this church, but this idea of like, I'm going to walk in nature and that's my church. And right. there's also this arrogance, right? There's this arrogance that says, I don't need it. I've kind of outgrown it. Those of you who still need the church, quote unquote, mm. there's, you know, yeah, that's fine for you, but I yeah. don't need it. There's this arrogance to it. I read the New Testament and I see over and over the need to gather, uh, I, the, you know, the sacraments. I see spur one another on to loving good deeds. Yeah. I see the local church uh, again, and it could be done differently. This isn't like everybody has to go to the mega church or right, everybody has to do this. Right. You could still not like certain variations of the church, but I just don't see it as an option to go. I'm done with the church. Yeah. Church bad. All of this stuff. Yeah. I don't see it. And that's what has bothered me over the last couple of years, Aubrey. It's this glorification of people who are uh, renouncing the church. Yeah. I, I think that's unhealthy. I think that's bad for us as a, as a Christian culture. I don't think that's a step in a right direction. We just, are there churches and does the church need a constant reforming? Obviously. Yeah. Yes. But the giving up on the church and going half of the good Christians I know don't even attend a church. I, I, I think that that's, that's not a good thing. He might be saying that is a good thing. I don't see that as good at all. Yeah. I, I don't see that as good at all. In fact, I, I actually think it's pre- pretty problematic that some of these folks are like speaking in churches, but they don't have a home church. And I, I think you're right. Like there's, again, we can have a conversation about the model of the church. Like, like, do you need to go to a traditional church service? Can you go to a house church, a low church? I don't think that's the problem, but being a part of a church family is biblical. Like there isn't an option for a Christian. In fact, I think the early Christians and the early Christian writers, the earlier followers of Jesus would have been like, what? You're doing this alone by walking through nature? Like, there just was no space for that biblically. Right. And this is what I want to get to, Brian, is ultimately why the church matters. And so, again, we're over at Relevant Magazine. There's an article called Five Reasons Not to Give Up on the Church. This is by our good friend, Scott Sauls, by the way. He says, number one, the church is Jesus's bride. He's quoting Tony Campolo here, and he says, you dare not decide that you don't need the church. Christ's church is his bride, and his love for Mm. her makes him faithful to her, even when she is not faithful to him. And then Scott goes on to say, the church was God's idea, God's plan for his kingdom on earth. As Mm. St. Cyprian said, one cannot have God as his father who does not have the church as his mother. And I, I just, I think that's so important. It is. Uh, I also love that Scott Sauls can... 
This is what I appreciate about Scott Sauls, amongst many other things, is that he feels the freedom to quote Tony Campolo. <laughs> I know. Scott I love Sa- that, too. I, I love Tony Campolo. Yeah. But he was instrumental. I heard him at a high school conference when I was in high school. Yeah. And I also heard him at Wheaton. And I know this is a lot off the subject, but yeah. he would not be considered our tribe, quote unquote. And he would certainly not be considered Scott Sauls's tribe, right. quote unquote, within Christianity. So the fact that Scott feels the freedom to quote Tony Campolo, I really appreciate that. I, I remember this is so funny. I didn't mean to talk about Tony Campolo, but I, I was really ministered uh, by him at an event once. And I came home to tell someone in my church and they were like, oh, be careful, Tony Campolo. And that was my first um, kind of moment of like, oh, some people are in and some people are out. And I didn't really like that. Like, I was like, well, yeah. wait a second. Anyway. Um, okay. Two, the church is a family. Family is the chief metaphor the Bible uses when it talks mm-hmm. about the church, um, which I uh, which I think something you and I have said that the church is not an exclusive. This is Scott Sauls again, an exclusive monolithic club. It's a gathering mm-hmm. of wonderfully and sometimes irritatingly diverse, divinely selected brothers, sisters, sons, daughters, mothers, fathers, mm-hmm. grandfathers, grandfathers. A dysfunctional family at times, but a family nonetheless. And then he says, uh, number three, the church is a diverse community. Um, and this is cool, Brian. He's talking about the way they describe community at his own church, Scott Saul's Church, Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville. Here's uh, how he describes their community. We are builders and baby boomers, Gen Xers and millennials, conservatives and progressives, educators and athletes, struggling doubters and committed to believers, Engineers and artists, introverts and extroverts, healers and addicts, CEOs and homemakers, affluent and bankrupt, single and married, happy and hurting, lonely and connected, stressed out and carefree, private and public schoolers, PhDs and people with special Mm. needs, experts and students, saints and sinners. Isn't that cool? That's his description of the community. I love Scott Sauls. That's great. I know. So good. Then number four, fourth reason not to give up on church. The church teaches us to love. Part of the Christian experience is learning to love people who are not like us. And then five, the church needs you. As a family, the church is a body. Without you, the church is missing an eye, an ear, or a hand. I that's think good. that's a very compelling argument. What do you think, Brian? It is. Oh, it's super compelling. Like, you need the church. The church needs you. And please, out there, don't fall into the arrogance that says, I'm beyond the church. Yeah. Like, I'm past the church. Going for a walk while healthy and good. I, I walk and pray all the, the same. All the yeah. Time. But that's, I would never call that my church. Right. You can connect with God like, in nature, but that's, that's not your church. Reject the individualism of yeah. our culture that has seeped into, mm. into our, our faith. Like you need the church. The church needs you. It's not going away. Uh, and, and find one that you, an imperfect one, because you're imperfect as well, yeah. that you can invest into. And, and I do believe that blesses us as we go. Like that's positive for us. Yeah. We also have our social media water cooler question up for the week this week. We want to know, we talked about this yesterday a little bit, but we want to hear from mm-hmm. you. What were something you said you would never do as a parent until you had kids? So maybe like feeding your kids microwavable dinners or letting them watch TV while eating dinner. What are some of those things we want to hear from you? That's the one I forgot. You and I talked about that yesterday. Yeah. And I was like, which was that might be the one. Really? I think when my kids were younger, I was always like, we're just going to sit around the table and I'm going to lead them in a great conversation about And we do this sometimes. <laughs> like, how was your day? We eat more meals on the run or watching TV. TV or uh, yeah. out on the back deck right, and right. I love it. I'm not against it, but I think when I was before I was like we you know, 
there's the primacy of the dinner table and we will always be gathered. <laughs> and mm-hmm, it just mm-hmm. is not the way our life works. It's not at the all. way life works. It's nice when you can have that moment, but it's not the way life works at all. That's so true. Oh, that's so funny. That That's actually bringing me back the primacy of the dinner table. All right, Brian. Well, speaking of our children and spending time with them, um, churchleaders.com is talking about this concept of negative Christianity and our kids. So here's what they're saying. Negative Christianity is um, essentially Christians who are more negative than positive. So they um, view the Bible as primarily a list of like things that you cannot do. Mm-hmm. Um, they tend to view other Christians who differ from them as like not okay they tend to just have like a more pessimistic or negative view of Christianity. Not not even a negative view of Christianity, but a negative perspective in their Christianity. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I would I would kind of consider this legalism the way that church leaders is describing it. Its primary focus of negative Christianity is following a rule list of do's and don'ts in order to be a good Christian. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but what they're saying is twenty years from now. Kids who are raised in this sort of negative Christianity are ultimately only going to perpetuate negative Christianity, right? And so uh, they want to see parents raise their children in what they're calling positive Christianity, which is something that rejoices in those who rejoice, weeps with those who weep, and uh, values brothers and sisters in Christ, even if they disagree with them. Negative Christianity rejoices only with those who are just like them. Positive Christianity mm-hmm. doesn't do that. It focuses more on the heart. Okay. So um, here are ways that we can talk to our kids, help our kids avoid negative Christianity, according to this article over at churchleaders.com. One of the things that they say is this, um, we can help our kids learn a positive message about people who are unsaved. Okay. Mm. So where a negative Christianity might be like, change your sinful lives. And then you can come to Jesus. They're saying a positive Christianity instead focuses on almost the opposite, like receiving God's power, receiving Jesus, and then your sinful lives are changed. So it's the difference, Mm. I guess, between grace and legalism. Yeah, um, yeah, and that they're saying, "Hey, we can talk to our kids about that." They also say that positive Christianity sees the church as a hospital for sinners, instead of negative Christianity a showcase for saints. Okay, so there's yeah. more examples of this, but what do you think about this concept of negative versus Christian, negative versus positive Christianity? Yeah, I, I here, here's why I think there's a lot to it. Is as I read this article and as you talk about it, it is. It's Jesus's words to the Pharisees, right? Like this is the sermon we've all preached on woe to you Pharisees. Um, you know, you only are concerned with, the, you, you know, whitewashed tombs looking beautiful on the outside, dead on the inside or mm. clean the inside. Like this feels, uh, so they've termed it negative and positive Christianity. This feels like Jesus's uh, passage of woe to the Pharisees and religious leaders, where he kind of makes that line of demarcation that says, listen, you religious leaders who are most esteemed, this is where you get it wrong. And how do they always get it wrong? It's about image. It's about what people see. It's about rule following. 
It's about who they are not. It's condemning other people. Yeah. It's all of this stuff. And Jesus says, you've got it wrong. Mm. And so it's so easy to slip back into that. And that's why I think this article has a lot of legs, because it says they're calling it positive and negative Christianity. It would as if be like, you woe to you Pharisees, you know, you practice negative Christianity by causing people to do this and to do this. And it's so subtle. But if, if I do think if, if this is the picture of Christianity that our kids are getting, yeah, then I think I actually think one of two things happens. They perpetuate this as they get older and maybe even take it even further, right? Greater legalism, greater whatever, or they fly the other way. We've all seen this. Like, ah, I'm not going to be legalistic like my parents or mm. like my college. So therefore, I'm not going to have any rules. I'm not going to have anything. Yeah. Jesus just loves me for who I am. And we've seen that as well. We want to give a picture of, uh, no, no, our life is based on the grace and forgiveness of Jesus yeah. Christ. And therefore we live our lives this way. Like there's that balance that they here are calling positive Christianity. I, easier said than done, but if we could live this out, yeah. I think it's a faith that, that is energizing and we pass on well. Yeah. And I, I think for, I think you're exactly right, Brian, like, cause we, cause you don't, you don't want the pendulum. Cause I do hear this. Like you don't want the pendulum to swing to like, it doesn't matter what you do. Right. Like yep. God just loves you for who you are. Yes, 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 yes. And also once we are in Christ, like we're compelled to live like Jesus. And so in one sense, it does matter what we do, but our, our doing can never like out, outdo our being in Jesus. So somehow, like if you're on a, if you're on a train track, you're the rail, that's your being with Jesus being transformed by Jesus and you're doing for Jesus, like one can't outdo the other, right? Like somehow yes. you want that train track to, to run in alignment. And in one sense, I think that's what's being said here is like, that's a positive Christianity where the doing is not more important than the being, et cetera. Um, interestingly, here's how they kind of wrap up this article. In short, positive Christianity is a positive thing and the world can see it. Negative Christianity is a negative thing. And sadly, the world sees that too. Mm. There's nothing more positive that this dark negative world needs more than what Christianity has to offer. And if the world can't see that through us, maybe it's time to evaluate why. And I think that's compelling because I do feel like when the world looks at Christianity right now, they are looking at a negative version. And some of that yes. we can't control. We can't control how the world sees the message of Jesus. And yet we can still as people who follow Jesus represent him to the world in a way that is this beautiful, I, I would say what Scott Tell says, like a beautiful Christianity versus like a negative or um, not compelling Christianity. Mm -hmm. And I, I think in one sense, we have to just be praying that the Holy Spirit will allow us to live a beautiful, grace-filled Christianity that the world sees. Because we're not going to do this on our own. Like we're all going right. to, we're all going to tend to either be legalist or like you were saying, go the other way and not do anything. Right. But right. if we can ask for the Holy Spirit to kind of, I guess, guide us as we live as Christians in this world pray that we represent Jesus in the most beautiful light we can. Like that's, that's the call that has to be a work of God in our lives. A hundred percent. And it's, it's a difficult task, but we want to have that grace 
fueled life balance where it does yeah. manifest itself in the way we actually live our lives. It's the end of the show on Tuesday evening. And at the end of every show, we love to bring you something cur- encouraging or challenging or something to put a smile on your face. One place we go for that is the week where they gather just good news of the week. We cover so many hard, heavy stories. We've actually been like kind of critiquing the church all morning and so, or all afternoon. And so it is fun to just share some good news with you. All right, Brian. So I'm going to share a, uh, one of the first stories. Okay. Okay. Uh, this is a little crazy. Are you ready for it? A yes. teen lifeguard, teen lifeguard helps deliver a baby poolside. All right. Imagine if this is one of your teenagers. Natalie Lucas's. Oh, (laughs) that's true. You're just swimming and all of a sudden there's a baby coming. Natalie Lucas's lifeguarding skills were put to test in a whole new way last month. Lucas, she's 18 years old, has been a lifeguard at the YMCA in Longmont, Colorado for three years on July 24th. Tessa Ryder and her husband, Matthew Jones, visited the club's pool since being in the water was one of the only ways Ryder, who was pregnant and passed her due date, felt comfortable. Just minutes after they arrived, Ryder got out of the pool and said her water had broken. The adrenaline kicks in right then and there, Lucas told Good Morning America. While Jones called 911, Lucas started grabbing medical supplies and towels. I knew I needed to stay calm and level-headed, Lucas said. About five minutes later... Ryder gave birth to a baby boy, Tobin Thomas Ryder. I got to hold, I got to like call a flag on the play here. I don't know anyone whose water breaks and then five minutes later they have a baby. I've never heard of this happening. So I agree with that. I would say we have three kids. Yeah. The first child, uh, Madeline, ended up being a really long labor and yes. a C-section. Yeah. And so Jackson, we were trying not to have a C-section with. And so there was all these kind of... Uh, and we ended up needing to have a C-section uh, yeah. again. But with that said, he started coming so fast that there was a good chance that if uh, if it wasn't going to end in a C-section, if everything had yeah. been normal, he, there's a good chance he was coming in our laundry room. No like way. It was, so okay. I do okay. get this. Right. But there are some questionable parts of this story. Like you're that far over. You're in the water. You're – I don't know. They're, they're – yeah, eighteen year old. I don't know. I'm I, questioning. I, I'm it, glad all is well. All is well. Both Ryder and Tobin are doing well. Lucas says she plans on sending the card, the baby, a card every year on his birthday. Can I ask you a really uncomfortable question? Not. Uh, it's not too uncomfortable. Maybe. <laughs> uh, woman's water breaks in the pool. What is the what is the cleaning mechanism? Yeah, man. For the I think you got to. I, I mean, look. You drain I'm, every ounce yeah, of that water. Like I'm pro woman and everything i'm not you know my water broke with my firstborn i'm not freaked out by it but yeah you got to drain that pool and then re did, you have to, it's just like if a you know other bodily you, fluids come out of the pool you got to drain the pool did you really feel the need to say i'm pro woman about a story where her water <laughs> broke in the pool yes because I don't, want anyone, be I, there, I don't want anyone out there to be like oh she's just like afraid of like a woman's water breaking no i'm a woman i've had three kids i am pro women i don't want to be swimming around in that <laughs> And I don't think other yeah, people. I don't, need I don't to feel either. like I don't feel like you needed to make that caveat for well, one. Well, that's but... your male bias. You wouldn't think that, but I do. I do I, need to say I it. Mean, <laughs> I've, I've seen babies be born, but I wouldn't want to swim in that fluid. Yes, that's uh, that is true. I would. I would like to know a follow up to that story. How, what did they do there? Okay, number two. This retired barber cuts hair for donations and has made ten thousand dollars to feed the hungry. Wow. 
Tom Gorzicki is using his Clippers for a good cause. The 87-year-old retired 23 years ago, closing his barber shop after decades in business. But in the last five years, he started cutting hair again in the basement of his senior living community Come in Minnesota. On. He doesn't charge anything for his cuts, but does ask clients to donate whatever they can to his ongoing fundraiser for Arm in Arm Africa. As long as I still have a steady hand, I will keep going, he said. Grzycki has raised more than $10,000 for the nonprofit and is gratified by what I do to feed my friends in South Africa. Mm. Uh, it talks about how they started to give after they, they went there. But that's really cool. 87 years old, and he's, he decided, I'm going to use what I used to do. Uh, and help people That's awesome. Out. I love that. Would you go to an 87-year-old barber, though? So, no. No, I wouldn't. So, I, I'm sorry about that because I love this story. I think it's awesome, but no. Would you? Uh, only if I'd been going for a while. Okay, yeah, yeah. But I, I think I've gone to some that are close to that age. But, <laughs> I mean, the thing uh, is, like, I wouldn't go to a barber at all. Like, unfortunately, true, like, true. he doesn't I guess know the how bigger to... question is, would you take your boys there? But really, Maybe. the truth is, the truth is he's doing it in the basement of a senior living facility. I think he's only cutting other seniors. When I'm <laughs> 80 not years a lot old, of hair. I don't care what you do to my hair. Well, and right? also, like, like how care. much hair do all these seniors have? You know what I mean? The truth of the matter is, at 85 years old, there's probably more, <laughs> they're probably spending more time cutting... <laughs> Uh, eyebrow hair, ear hair, ear hair, nose hair, then head hair. That's yes. true. That's probably true. Man, I feel like we are so like dark and cynical today. Like both these stories are so beautiful. And we've been like, um, I don't know. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I let's... stand by I stand by my they needed to drain the pool. They need to drain before, the pool. So. They do. All right. Here's another good story. To raise money for wildlife, a man runs the width of Ireland in twenty three hours. That's cool. Robert Pope started and finished his 134-mile journey across Ireland with a pint of Guinness and a hope for wildlife. The 44-year-old is an ultramarathon runner who decided two months ago he wanted to raise money for the World Wildlife Foundation by running from Galway to Dublin. He set off on Saturday with a support staff consisting of four friends. Pope was encouraged along the way by people who followed him on social media and came out to show their support by cheering him on and handing him food. I would love to have been there to do that. That is so cool. Pope, who in 2018 ran more than 15,000 miles crisscrossing the United States, made it to Dublin in 23 hours and 39 minutes. It's believed that Pope is the first person to run the width of Ireland in less than a day. But he joked to BBC News that he accepts the possibility, this is a quote from him, some gnarled old club runner from Cork could have done it once in January. <laughs> That's funny. It's a good story. Uh, Next story, a couple marries at the hospital where their daughter was in the NICU. Uh, when Grier Stanley Barnwell and Jason Barnwell got married August the 3rd, it was also a celebration of their infant daughter, Drew, and the medical team that spent months taking care of her in a Connecticut neonatal intensive care unit. See, Drew was born prematurely on April the 21st, nearly three months ahead of her due date. Mm. Her parents postponed their wedding twice during her stay in the NICU. And when Jason shared this with the nurse, she suggested they get married right there in the hospital. We laughed it off like, are you serious? But she took it to another level. By getting married in the NICU, Drew was able to be part of the big day. Grier held her in a carrier. The family was surrounded by the different medical workers who spent months caring for her, which was a great reward for the team. Uh, two days later, 
Drew, who smiled at the end of the ceremony, Aww. was discharged and able to go home. That's Aww, beautiful. Oh, that's precious. I love that. That's very, very cute. All right. Well, there's some good stories for you for the week. See, it wasn't all bad news. We got some good, no, it's some good. good cute good, good. stories. That's right. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.